you know, the known is, is safe and the unknown is scary. And, and, but discovery can only take place on that boundary between the two. And I think as a society, we need to cultivate this virtue of being able to manage that well. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Frankman. And on today's episode, I'm talking to my friend, Michael Gibson. Michael is the co-founder of 1517, a venture fund that backs young people, especially teenagers building companies. And he's the author of the recently released book, Paper Belt on Fire. In today's episode, we talk about Michael's experience backing young people building companies, first at the Teal Fellowship and then later at 1517. We talk about the importance of youth entrepreneurship. We talk about encouraging youth entrepreneurship. We talk about the cost-benefit analysis of whether or not one should go to college. I've been a huge fan of both Michael's work and also 1517 more broadly since honestly, when I was deciding whether or not to go to college and what to do in dead. And so I'm very excited to have Michael on the show. We had a really fun conversation today and I hope you enjoy listening. How long is this trip that you're on right now? Or like how much of your time is actually spent going to different places and meeting young people and interacting with them and trying to find people to invest in with 1517? Sometimes I feel like our life is one of those songs like the Beach Boys, Surfing USA or Back in the USSR. Or what was that Steve Miller song about? Where it's like every lyric is is some new city. I went to Phoenix, Arizona on the way to Tacoma. <laughs> you know, this is <laughs> this is our life um, as I suppose talent scouts and uh, in the world of entrepreneurship and tech and science. So this trip is two weeks. Uh, I started in Chicago, went to Ann Arbor, Indianapolis. Now I'm recording this from Urbana Champaign in Illinois. Uh, I'll be off to San Francisco for a few days for a, a book event there. So um, that'll be quite a long trip. In normal times, though, I want to say any one of us on the team, we're out on the road maybe maybe one week a month in some way. Maybe it's just a long weekend, but we tend to be pretty much uh, out there quite often because <clears throat> it's just, uh, it's, it's like maybe the analogy is like sports scouting where, uh, you know, you've heard of like, NFL scouts or college football scouts going out to West Texas to see Friday night game linebacker that they heard was good. Uh, similarly for us, uh, I'm in at the University of Illinois talent hotbed. Maybe I meet some engineer uh, who's 18, 19, and, and they're not starting something now, but uh, we always want to develop a personal relationship with people as fast as possible because then when they do, if they do start a company, then we have a better sense of who they are. So what types of interactions are you trying to have when you're on the road? Like, are you looking for people who are actively hungry to start something that you can support? Are you looking for investments right off the bat? Mm. Are you, you mentioned spreading the gospel earlier, like how much of it is trying to plant the seeds that maybe you should be doing something other than just being in school? What's the mix? Yeah, the it's pretty rare for us to meet someone who just happens to be raising money for a startup at this moment in time. Um, that tends to always be the, it, it's like usually they, we meet someone and it's more just about vibing, sort of getting a sense of who someone is, what they're interested in. There are things we can do to help them now. A lot of, so we, we have a program where we give out $1,000 grants to people. So if we meet someone on the road and, and they tell us they need to buy a few spare parts to build a prototype, I wish we could just slide 
a thousand bucks in a white envelope across the table and say, okay, go at it. Uh, but for tax reasons, we can't do that. So in the movie, that's how they'll portray it. When they make a movie about <laughs> yeah. you someday, the actor's going to be sliding the cash across the that's table. Like, tuck this in your breast um, pocket real quick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sometimes we, we meet a lot of people on the road who are in that situation. And that is a great way for us to establish just contact and, and build rapport. Uh, gives us a sense of what it's like to work with someone. We'll keep in touch with them over time. A lot of those grants just disappear. You know, people do things and then it doesn't go anywhere. But I think over the years, we've given out maybe 400 of those and something like 15 or so are are still companies with like 50 employees and they've raised tons of money. So then as, as low as it is, it seems high to me, the hit rate there, given, you know, that this is conversation with someone in the middle of nowhere and just $1,000. And then uh, moreover, it's like the $1,000 isn't really even the main, uh, it's like that helps the person, but what what helps even more is that here's an established person, you know, from Silicon Valley or used to be from Silicon Valley, whatever, I have a reputation. So now I'm telling them, hey, this is an interesting idea and you should work on this. And like no one else has told them that before. So oftentimes that that brings some energy into their into their life and they get moving. How surprised is the average person that you talk to both about what you do, but also the things that you're talking about? Because you're probably preaching a gospel that is very different from pretty much anyone else they're interacting with. You're talking about not going to school and starting businesses and companies launched by like teenagers and young adults that are thriving. Is that like, what's the average response to that? Are they like, oh my gosh, somebody actually thinks I can do this? This is crazy. Are they more, is it less of a foreign idea to the average person you meet? I'm still surprised to this day how, how, People haven't really thought about that. Yeah, or you, we meet a lot of people where it takes them by surprise that we exist. That, um, well, what, what is the gospel? Our gospel is that some ideas can't wait. That, you know, rather than being in classes or entangled in school responsibilities, maybe it's time to step aside and, and really focus on this project you're passionate about. And, and we'll give people resources to do it. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that that still takes younger people by surprise. We were at a table last night at this hackathon at Hack, Hack Illinois, at the University of Illinois. And, you know, people are just walking by and Nick and I, I mean, we, we kind of came here last, we didn't come prepared. Usually we have a tablecloth or something that announces who we are. So instead we had the uh, Lucy sign from um, Peanuts it just said 1570 fund <laughs> and uh, script and, you know, advice five cents, but like people would come by. And even just the question that like, hey, have you ever thought about starting a company? Um, I was uh, I was surprised at the number of people who were still not sure that was a thing they could do. Um, so, you know, even when we started the Teal Fellowship in 2010, uh, it was very controversial to say to, to younger people, hey, maybe, you know, college isn't right for you and you want to do this other path instead. Um, and I feel like over time, it became more and more acceptable uh, to drop out of school. Um, but, but it's still the case today that it's very unusual. Uh, so it's come down somewhat, but I, I want to say it's still unusual. Uh, and, I, and I just face, uh, so the book that I just wrote about what we do, it's, I, I've been also surprised there with like the resistance to the book in the mainstream media 
from publishing houses and so on. So, so the message that that college isn't necessarily a fit for everyone is still controversial. Um, and then also it's the case that not many people think about becoming startup founders or starting small businesses or, or anything that's entrepreneurial. Which is surprising to me because I feel like the climate has changed a lot. Because I, I grew up homeschooled. I graduated from high school in 2015 and I didn't want to go to college. I thought I was college bound because I was very academic, mm. but slowly realized over the course of my high school experience that it would kind of be a step back to go to college and do like the first two years as opposed to what I was already mm. doing. And so I was looking furiously across the internet for people who were talking about what else to do. And the only things I could find was articles by Zach Slayback and, okay. and Derek McGill from Praxis yeah. talking about not going to college. And it was just this like lifeline for me that mm. I held on to because somebody was saying that I wasn't crazy. And then I worked for Praxis for years and was okay, writing cool. a lot about, you know, not going to college and stuff. Yep. Um, like that's what I did. I, I skipped college and went and interned for Praxis instead. Mm. Um, but I felt like the landscape had changed so much over right. the years that I was there where when I was deciding not to go to college, nobody was talking about it. But now you Google like things to do besides mm. college and it feels like every major publication has articles about what That's else is fair. out there and what you it's can like, do. There's a lot of info out there. One, and, and even your own experience, I think, is becoming more common. Maybe of all the silver linings to COVID, maybe the one of the good ones is that... Uh, we just see more and more people considering homeschooling an option or maybe even pods, you know, mm -hmm. educating their children, uh, just taking greater control of their children's ed education. And I think that's really positive. Um, you get some of these school choice ballot measures in state assemblies. So I, I, I think that's been a good, good change over the last 10, 12 years. But it hasn't felt significant when you're going and talking to young people like out on the streets or at hackathons. There's still, it's a very similar climate to yeah, where it was no, in 2010. Wish, maybe my expectations are too high. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it seems to be the case that, uh, and, and, and maybe uh, in places like San Francisco, Boston, New York, and Austin, I think the conversations will be different uh, from, let's say, where I am right now or you know, somewhere else in the country. So, so maybe that's part of it too. But, but I, I, yeah, I, I just think culturally, we, if you look at movies, for instance, when was the last time you saw a business person portrayed in a positive light? Or for that matter, like a regulator portrayed in a negative light? Maybe Ghostbusters is the last movie where that's the case. It's pretty rare. It's like in most movies, business people are evil. They're always greedy, cheaters. Yeah. Um, so I, I and, and it's not really looked at as a honorable path or at least not celebrated. Um, so, I, yeah, it still feels like we're on our back foot when it comes to promoting entrepreneurship, despite like a decade of, of startup mania. Why do you think it's so hard for this to catch on? Because like once you see it, it's very obvious. Once you've seen that young people can start companies and they can yeah. or go play big roles in companies, like it's it's abundantly obvious how much of this is happening and how easy it is to break mm. through and start actually building something meaningful. And yet so many people, yeah. in spite of the what appears to me to be overwhelming evidence that this is the case, so many people just like haven't had the the blindfold taken off yet where they can mm. now see it for what it is. Why is that so hard to overcome? 
Maybe another way to think about this uh, recently, I, I read a book about why the U.S. men's team will never win the World Cup in, in soccer. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big soccer fan, but it's interesting that, you know, obviously other nations and cultures place a greater emphasis on soccer. And in the United States, um, we just haven't been able to cultivate talent in the same way. So, you know, somewhat similarly, I think we can think about nations and societies, cities, ecosystems as like some are more creative than others. And the question is why? Um, and, and what I, you know, with soccer, the analogy, I've, I've been talking to different people about this since I know so little and just talking to people who are actually fanatics in other countries. And one of the things they point out is how in the United States, everything is adult supervised when it comes to soccer. It's more this activity that parents get their children into. And so it's always structured. Um, you know, people are brought to practice at a young age. They're taught in techniques and drills. And uh, these leagues are always organized by adults. And what they said was that if you look at places like Brazil or other powerhouses, um, you know, young children, you know, five-year-olds are playing soccer in an alleyway with rocks from, you know, just the earliest of age. And so there's something to that free form, wild style, no adult supervision that lead, that leads to more creativity in the, in the game. And so it's like these players that come up from those countries just have, you know, years and years of that tacit knowledge accumulated. And so I think the same could be said of entrepreneurship and even, you know, some of these other more creative careers, whether it's like being a poet or a novelist or so on, where I want to say the public school system and just our ideas about education have created a similar system to that soccer idea where, hey, we're going to impose this top down. It's going to be adult supervised and structured. And so what we've lost is um, whatever the entrepreneurial equivalent is of a rock in the street and people kicking it around. Um, when we ran the Teal Fellowship, one of the things that stood out right away was the people who applied and were very successful at climbing up a hierarchy within an institution successfully were not good at like just being entrepreneurs in the wild. So it's like the type of person who's good at uh, writing wonderful essays, studying for exams and acing them, uh, pleasing committees and winning awards. That type of person is very different from, you know, the wild style creative person, that, you know, that needs to start a company. And so what we saw was the people who were homeschooled actually just were like ducks to water uh, when they were out in the world. They just had a, a greater uh, ability to cope with the uncertainties and structure their own time and set their own goals. Whereas the people who had, you know, climbed to the very tops of the American school system, you know, from prep schools to Harvard, Intel Science Award, they were very brittle in the face of uncertainty and self-direction. So I, I, I think there's something there where, uh, you, know, I'll, I, I, you know, these things don't track perfectly parallel to, to each other, but I think America used to be a much more creative society than it is today. And even though we're still, you know, the leader in the world, I think on an absolute level, we've fallen behind. And, and so I want to say mandatory public schooling, compulsory schooling is, is one of the culprits here just because it, it saps the creativity out of people. Can you talk a little bit more about that when you say that you think America used to be more creative than it is now? Intuitively, yeah. that feels correct to me. 
but I'm curious what you're basing that conclusion on. Right. So one of the big themes in my book and, you know, people like Peter Thiel and Tyler Cowen have talked about this is this idea of the great stagnation. Um, So generally the idea is sometime around 1970, 71, if you look at the numbers that economists attach to innovation, um, everything seems to slow down. Uh, So, you know, one wonky stat is called total factor productivity. This is a measure of, you know, what inputs create what outputs. And sure enough, you look at that sometime in the early 70s, you see a, a sharp decline in the rate at which that's improving. So we used to get more for less, much more rapidly. Now it's like, okay, we're, we're, we're making gains, but it's just nowhere near the rate it used to be. And then you can do sector by sector. Um, so the one area we can all acknowledge there's been massive progress is in computers and uh, communication technology, the world of bits. But in the world of atoms, things have been much slower. And when you look at healthcare, one stat that st- stands out for me is 1900, Life expectancy at birth was somewhere around 45 years old. You go to 1980, and you've seen a massive increase, just phenomenal progress, driven by sanitation, uh, but also discoveries like penicillin, um, all the major surgeries that we know of now. Uh, So by 1980, the life expectancy at birth in the United States was somewhere around 73, 72. So you see, you know, 30-year increase almost. Um, whereas from 1980 to the present, uh, you know, life expectancy at birth in the U.S. is somewhere around 74 years, 75 years now. In the last five years, it's gone down because of COVID and then also deaths of despair due to uh, addiction to fentanyl and other things. So, um, so that's not progress, right? I mean, okay, it's a little bit, but it's not the dramatic progress we saw from 1900 to 1980. Um, and I think the same story could be told in other fields, whether that's, you know, it could be energy creation, it could be transportation. Um, but I would argue, I would submit that it's even true in creative fields. Uh, you know, when was the last time you heard anyone discuss the great American novel? Um, I think in the arts, uh, things have gotten worse. We live in a world of, you know, the Madonna Dung piece uh, versus, you know, <laughs> if you look at the Sistine Chapel, uh, by comparison, I think, you know, the nature of art has changed a great deal, architecture too. Um, so it, to me, uh, you know, even though we have made progress in some areas more than others, just what stands out is just how little progress we've made even in creative fields. And, and now even movies are just like retreads. It's like we only get superhero movies that are, you know, some sequel of an already existing franchise instead of something new. Um, you know, when, where, where's the new music. It all just sounds, I mean, maybe I'm an old man, but it's like, it just You're all not sounds wrong. the same. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there are lots of reasons for this, but I, I, I can't believe that our school systems are, are helping us at all. But creativity in general is just a mystery. It's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful things about humanity. And yet we know so little about it. Uh, we don't know where it comes from, wh- how it works. We don't know how to cultivate it or teach it. Um, but we do know how to destroy it. We know how to stifle it. Um, and it seems to be the case, or I would argue, that our schools fit in that category. 
There's some other interesting data that we've been talking about a little bit, especially this past week. You may have seen us tweeting about mm. this, um, about the decline of like great philosophers and artists and writers like per person mm. from oh, the yes, right. 1600s all the way. Like it was, it was pretty high, relatively high mm. um, through like the 1500s. And then there's just this like slow decline that yep. gets steeper and steeper as we move closer and closer to the present. And it appears to correlate, like I have no scientific proof of this, but it appears to correlate with the points in time where our education system also became more standardized. And obviously mm. a lot of other things were happening in our world too. So much has changed right. since the 1500s. Yeah, that is fascinating. I guess to steel man the counter argument, they always say that all the lower hanging fruit was picked by these earlier generations. So even though there were fewer people, all the greats were able to, you know, make discoveries that were easy to make or, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, establish a genre in an art form and really exhaust its possibilities. But but I, I just don't think that's true. Um, yeah, I find that very hard to buy. The idea that, like, it wasn't just as inobvious to, like, mm -hmm. you know... The, the thing, the conclusions that Plato was drawing were not just as inobvious to the average person in, in ancient Greece that the yeah, conclusions right. that a great philosopher today would be drawing would also be. Like, I find that hard to believe. Yeah. And then the other thing about that that stands out is that population size, uh, you know, the, the more people doesn't mean more innovation. That Clearly. You know, you have a, a country of a billion people in India or China, but, you know, a lot is holding them back. Uh, and, and I'm sure there are a great number of da Vinci quality people if you have a billion of them, but I guess they just don't have the institutions or the culture to support them. Yeah, well, it's definitely, we live in a world that is very good at stifling creativity, very mm -hmm. bad at preserving it and cultivating it and encouraging it. Right. But it does seem to be... Like in my mind, that's always been one of the big distinctions between homeschoolers and like the average mm. traditionally schooled kid. Obviously, there are many exceptions to this. There are many homeschoolers that aren't yeah. that creative and there are many traditionally schooled kids who are. But generally speaking, homeschoolers tend to trend more on the creative side of things. And when they do mm. have it, they have it in spades. Right. And to me, it seems like it's just not getting killed the same way that it is when you're in a classroom Mm. all day and you're just like wilting under the strain yeah. of all of the pressures and all of the it's yeah it's such a it's such an unnatural environment of course your creativity is not going to thrive mm -hmm. but yeah i think one of the, and then and what you just said uh, maybe answer ago about standardization i hate that mm -hmm. it's the same yeah it's not I mean, not only are people forced to be in the same place sit in the same desk in the same row but uh, it's the same for a lot of people across the U.S. or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe it changes a little bit country by country. But And we're trying to make them all the same. Yeah. Whereas the great, the, the great people who actually come up with new ideas, like by definition of coming up with a new idea, you must be different. Mm. There must be something distinct about the way that you see the world versus everyone else. Yeah, I don't know why this doesn't upset people more. Maybe that's astonishing to me is just how little, you know, how... Like, where is the anger? Where is the... Well, I don't think people think about anger. it. Because I, yeah. I think about this too. I Because like, mm. once you start going, once you even take like a step down, down the path of exploring what's actually going mm. on in our schools, it is immediately anger inducing. I tweeted yesterday yeah. that 54% of American adults read 
at or below a sixth grade level, according to the United States Department of Education. Like, how does that not make people angry? Right. I've been in arguments with, you know, college for all people. And and they always make (laughs) this argument. (laughs) Yeah, they always make this argument that, you know, it's the duty of a country to uh, create an educated citizenry, that no democracy can survive without an educated citizenry. And, and I say, have you seen your, your own school system? It's not doing this, and you've done nothing to change it. In fact, you've only given it more money and power. It's like, yeah, one stat, one, on that literacy uh, stat, there's, there's something like in California, it's like 22 23% of adults are, are functionally illiterate. So maybe they read a little bit, but not, they can't read a full contract or something. It's like, how does that not indict the entire school system in California that it should be overhauled and, and abolished. <laughs> I, don't I don't understand why people don't have the the panic about it. I have theories about this, yeah. but it doesn't really compute to me. But I think part of it is that, like for a lot of people, it's just sort of, it can run mm-hmm. on autopilot because like, well, we yeah. all went through the system and we're, we're fine. Like we're functioning. So clearly it's like yeah. a system that can sort of maintain itself ad infinitum. But it's also, like I think people if you don't have a child who is in the system actively, mm. it doesn't appear terribly relevant to you. Like, yeah. I think that I am unusual in that I am, I'm, I'm just like not a normal statistic and that I am like yeah. in my twenties, don't have kids yet, but I care very much about this because I just am right. an educated. And then maybe it. if you're a parent, yeah, you're middle income, lower income parent, you know, you're just happy to have childcare and, and you're not yeah. thinking too yeah. hard about it not to be discredited, but it's just, education isn't cool. But I think there's some primordial, primitive, emotional or moral intuition that humans have about healthcare and about education where it just seems to addle the brain. It's like there's this, and there's a reflex, something must be done. This is something, okay, we're fine. Um, Because if you look nation by nation, it's like, what do people spend money on? And, and governments, you know, just spend enormous amounts of money on healthcare, taking care of the old, and then education. Um, and, and a lot of these things are, you know, demanded as rights. So there's something powering that in a way where, you know, people don't feel the same, you know, attachment to who makes sushi or their phone or whatever. So what is it about education and healthcare that, like, sets people off. I don't know, but it seems to be almost like atavistic in its origin. Yeah, it's it's very strange. But it's also, I think people are also, it's hard to look at it face on because mm-hmm. there's a lot of unpleasant unpleasant conclusions that must be drawn once you see it for what it is. Yeah. Um, it's like, well, we're all doing this and have been doing this. It's like any any poor decision that one makes on an individual level. It's like once you're invested in it, it's even harder to admit right. that you're doing something wrong because then you have to admit that like, well, mm-hmm. this thing's really messed up and uh, I've been doing it for a while. That's also, I don't know, if, I don't know what, if, what factor that plays, but I feel like there's, for mm-hmm. some people that may play a role too. Yeah, it's true. I th- I, the appearance of learning is more powerful than the substance or the, you know, it's, actual yeah. learning. So much of it is is status symboling and or status yeah, that's another virtue signaling signaling sure. yeah yeah showing so. care status signaling yeah yeah that's all part of it and and if you look at the literature on education it's uh, it's also wild but not surprising given everything we've said 
is like how much has been ignored about, you know, what makes for a good education or the best forms of teaching and learning. The one, one of the most tantalizing studies is this Bloom's Two Sigma problem. So Bloom, the fa- he's a famous psychologist of education, you know, really working in the 70s and 80s. And he has a famous paper where he looked at the best techniques of teaching. And it turns out that like one-on-one tutoring is by far superior than any other technique. Um, you know, in his in his uh, analysis, it's two standard deviations better than, let's say, different styles of classrooms. And so his his lament is like, how, how do we replicate that experience on, on a wider scale? And what's sad about that paper is that, uh, you know, the, the number of participants is quite small. So maybe we should be cautious about the conclusions we draw. But no one has really, like, followed it up. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is interesting. One-on-one tutoring is very powerful. There have been some great blog posts, actually, in the last week or two. Some people have written about the history of tutoring um, and, and just how a lot of the great minds and in, in literature and science and so on, that their backgrounds are some version. It's like some 19th or 18th century version of homeschooling involving tutors. Um, and, and so since we know this, it's sad to me that, you know, people aren't trying to do it more. But maybe that'll change. I mean, maybe the hope is like, you know, now that this, I mean, like people are talking about it, but I think also post-COVID, especially in coming from a world of Zoom classes, I think parents are starting to understand that, uh, you know, the the old techniques don't really work. Yeah, and there are some people who are, it's very interesting how much research we have about what works and what doesn't that's just being completely ignored. It's not just Bloom's research. Yeah, right. One of my favorites is how useless uh, highlighting and rereading and note-taking appear to be. Um, there's a lot of research to show that doesn't really lead to mastery of material. Um, and, the, and the things that were, and, and, and I guess one of the findings is that there's this, uh, there's this pleasant feeling of learning when mm-hmm. in fact you're not learning. And then it's also the case that you could be learning, but it feels frustrating and you feel like you're not making progress. And so those two things don't necessarily track. And so maybe that's why people love highlighting because it, it makes it feel like you're, you're learning. But when it comes time to really show that you have mastered the material, you're not quite good at it. Um, so that's one of the things that stand like, no, I, like classrooms around the world are still encouraging highlighting and, and rereading um, instead of the hard practice of self-testing or interleaving subjects and, and spaced repetition and, and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, there are all these techniques that are just being left to rust on the table that we're not picking up. And, and I think, it, I mean, this is part of, so it's like, I think there's a mini Kremlin in every town. We just take it for granted that, you know, we have communist schools, not in politics, but just in terms of, you know, they're owned by the state, they're run by the state, and therefore we should expect lack of innovation, no incentives for people to improve things. I mean, we've seen this time and again over the last century. Why would we expect it to be different in the case of schools? That, that puzzles me. Yeah, I think I the the idea of reforming what we already have feels like an entire waste of time to me. Yeah. If people who are building innovative alternatives that are going to be setting the precedent for what is yeah. possible, places with less bureaucracy where you can go in and actually experiment with using like adaptive apps to teach kids, right. actually using things like spaced repetition and mastery based advancement. Mm-hmm. 
that you could never do in a classroom. Yeah, right. The main criticism against homeschooling, though, is always that people are will have unsocialized individual atomistic children. What, what, how did you grow up? What was your experience like? Did that... <laughs> I find that I have some... I, my views on this are actually getting more controversial because... Really? <laughs> yes, because originally, like, I... Like I got my first jobs because I was homeschooled and the people oh, wow. who I was trying to work with would mm-hmm. like my, my very first boss when I had a real like W2 job, mm-hmm. um, she'd homeschooled, my boss had homeschooled her kid. And so she's like, oh, you're a homeschooler. We like those. Oh, and then wow. my second job, I mentioned that I was a homeschooler in the interview and my future, my soon to be boss was like, oh, we've worked with homeschoolers before. You guys are hard workers. We like you. Um, and then my third, like real W2, like full-time job was Praxis. And obviously they loved homeschoolers. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the socialization differences of homeschoolers are an asset because you're not Mm. just trapped in this artificial environment where you're only interacting with people who are, it's like a very astrological, weird kind of thing. It's like, well, if you're born yeah. under these star signs and like this, in this astrological year kind of thing, like then you can be friends with these people. Yeah. Like it's very strange the way that we, we mm. just like lump kids by birth year into a classroom and then assume that that's a natural way for them to be learning how to navigate the real world. And the adult is always in a yeah. position of authority that's and you have to be... Point. Like you have to defer to them. Whereas mm. I was growing up, like my homeschool co-ops growing up, I was interacting with kids who were like, like pe- parents would be bringing their babies. Sometimes grandma would come along. You'd have like K all the way through 12 age range. And so you get to interact with this whole spectrum of people. You get the full human experience, which is how we were designed to learn. Right. Like we need to learn how to interact with all different ages and all different types of I people. I noticed that about a lot of homeschoolers that they have friends who are all different ages, e- yeah. even when they come out of their teens into their Yeah. 20s. In adulthood yeah. now, like probably 50% of the people I hang out with regularly here in Austin are like at least two decades older than I am. And it's like not weird at all. We just have the same interests and get along yeah. and it's great. But I feel like there definitely were the controversial piece of all of this is that there were parts of my childhood where I did have fewer social interactions because like I was part of a homeschool co-op that kind of schismed. And then like, I just Mm. had a weird set of interests that didn't map well with most of the people I was meeting when I was in like middle school, high school. So there were some lonely seasons, but I actually think that was really important for me Mm. because I think you can over-socialize a child. And if they're around other people all the time, they never have a chance to figure out what they individually are interested in without external inputs. Yeah. And they don't know, they don't have a chance to like, say, I'm really curious about this thing. I'm going to go down the rabbit hole, pursue it, chase it, learn about it. And the one of those articles, <coughs> excuse me, that you mentioned, um, that Henrik Carlson's article about mm. the childhoods of great people. Right. Um, one of the things that he talked about is how a lot of the greats that he was studying had all had periods of isolation in their childhoods where they'd gotten Mm -hmm. really bored and then they went and built stuff. And I had the exact same experience. Like I had 
didn't have a lot of friends for periods of time in middle school and high school. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to write novels where I pretend to have friends. And that's Mm -hmm. how I learned to write. And I think that was a really formative experience. So I think the argument of like, your kids are going to be lonely if they're homeschooled is really hard to face the idea that some isolation is good. But I think we're over-socializing the average child. We're over-socializing the creativity right out of them. Yeah, I'm in the over-socialized group where my sense is that the, the heart and the intuition are very weak and fragile things and susceptible to peer influence when you're growing up in teenage years. And so I think I just, you know, I played a lot of basketball. <laughs> and in retrospect, it seems a little silly. Um, but it was one of the only things that really seemed fun and competitive and had some some charisma to it. Whereas, I don't know, and then like the the, the my high school was just a hot house of status competition, popularity contests. And I didn't, you know, I just really didn't like that. It felt like a prison, Uh, not just in terms of like, hey, you can't leave the grounds, but (laughs) more just like there's this tiny little human society with its own status hierarchies and frustrations and so on. (laughs) Whereas I I think if I was outside that, I would have flourished much better and and maybe found that, that quiet, a uh, voice within that that really calls you to something that you love, and yeah, maybe it takes some loneliness to explore that territory. Um, but you know, the, the noise is too loud in a public school, which is maybe part of why we have this like a factor to this decline in creativity is that the like, creativity isn't cool, and being an innovator isn't cool, both at society at large, but especially when you're a teenager, like right. kids who want to work on projects on a Friday night are called nerds and nerd is not a compliment. It's a very derogatory term. <laughs> yes. um, yeah. You really want to fit in as a teen. Yeah. You're not going to be working on stuff. And yeah. And if you're different in any way, it can be hard to, to face that. It takes a lot of strength at, at any rate, you know, more than the, or you just accept that you're, you're like part of some you know, geek group I don't know, but yeah, I stopped, it's like I stopped playing Dungeons and Dragons. I remember in high school, I think it just, it was like, cause it was so uncool. Now I'm mm-hmm. back to playing as an adult. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was one of the things I remember that was dorky. Um, yeah, it's strange. Yeah. I, I don't know. Again, I wonder about human development. Is there something about that time in our lives where peer influence is particularly strong in a way that it isn't later on? Um I don't know if, you know, maybe I just need to do more reading on that. But but it seems to be the case, like, you know, primates will will have to leave the home at some point. They'll, um, usually it's males will go off and, and form their own tribe or, or whatever. And uh, and so in that, you know, I think human societies map onto that a little bit. We all, have, it's like across time, there are these rites of passage for emerging into adulthood. There's always some sense in which teenagers are going to assert their, independence. Um, and maybe part of that is like that peer group is, is so strong because you're, you're fine. You're, you're, these are your future mating potential mates and also, um, you know, friends and allies. So I don't know, this is all theoretical, but there is something about that time that's very formative in a way that, that I think later in life isn't. Yeah. Very formative. And we're clearly doing very poorly. What the answer is, is debatable, but I have theories, but, um, but then the whole thing continues into college, mm-hmm. too. 
where like the average person, I was an academically inclined kid. I wasn't even in public school and everybody was assuming I was going to go to college. The narrative is very strong. Um, And part of the, part of the reason I think is this, is this primitive impulse to have a rite of passage for mm -hmm. when every child has to mature into adulthood and, and symbolically leave the home. I feel like that's part of the reason college has become this, this, uh, monumental rite of passage in, in American life that's just assumed it has to take place. Of course, there are economics behind it that, you know, co- people who have college degrees make more on average than those who don't. But but I think, yeah, it's, it's over. And again, it's this 50-year time period where something changed to you know, economically, and now everyone thinks the only way to have a successful life is to get that college degree. And I think you and I are pretty on the same page in the conclusion that college is fairly dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think for private reasons, selfish reasons, people could decide to go to college because mm-hmm. that, that wage premium is still there, especially if you go to a good school. But it has nothing to do with what you study or, you know, or, mm-hmm. or you know, some skills you obtain. It's just that you are showing the labor market that you're capable of undertaking a four-year project and not messing it up and handing assignments on time and paying a lot of money to do it. Which uh, college does not have a monopoly on signaling. It's just the easiest yeah. way to yes, do yeah. it. You can absolutely do it yourself and make money while doing it. No, right? you've proven that. You know, Praxis is a good entry point for people, for sure. But who... Who should go to college if if anyone? Like, are there categories of people for whom it is still largely beneficial? I think for pragmatic reasons, anyone who's curious about the professions, if you do want to become a doctor, I think it's going to be really hard to do that without an undergraduate degree. I don't think there's any medical schools that'll take you without it. Um, like the same could be true of lawyers, although maybe we don't need more lawyers. Um and then, and then I think, although we're fighting against this, we're trying to get more and more people out to the frontiers of science sooner, especially without credentials. But there is a path to become a research scientist through universities that I think might be worth taking if that's your curiosity. Um, but if you're just like on this weird colossal assembly line that ends in some vaguely pre-professional degree and maybe you want to become an investment banker or management consultant. I mean, that's got to be dead and over. I mean, it's like, who wants to live this life? It's just so uninspiring. Um, And I think the only reason people do it is some of these cultural reasons we've mentioned and also the money. Um, But I I think it's not a good influence on on our society. Why? Well, yeah, because it's this Unibot replicator just creates the same person, different, different <laughs> model. And, and I don't, it's like no one, when they're like, what is charismatic? What draws your soul into it? What attracts you? Is it the life of a management consultant? Is it that George Clooney movie where he's flying around, <laughs> firing people, making businesses more efficient? Or, or is there some deeper longing that you have? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to be inspired by greatness and, and I hope other people do too. So it's like, I, I don't know why you would go to Harvard to become a Goldman Sachs analyst. That just seems like the road to perdition. 
compared to what what is the positive alternative that you would paint? Like if that is the negative thing you're running from, what right. is the thing that you're moving towards? Yeah, I think our society is too indefinite in its goals. It's like, you know, it seems people are always trying to preserve some optionality. Like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do in life, but as long as I keep the options open, I'll buy some time. And I think that happens with, with college. People go, not sure what they want to study. And they finally pick a major. They become a management consultant, not because they want to really make companies more efficient, but because it'll be good on the resume. And then maybe they go to business school, law school afterwards. And then maybe finally they'll, they'll decide what to do. So, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I think this has not been good for individuals. It hasn't been good for our society. And in my book, I, one of the inspirations for the last third or so where I go through different sectors, I wanted to lay out because I realized, like, what does it take to achieve greatness in all these different fields? And it occurred to me that, well, if you're 18 and you want to set out to become a, a scientist, um, it's not really clear what you should do other than, like, just go up the next rung in the ladder at some more prestigious place. So if you're going to become a fit, great physicist, go to Caltech and then maybe you go to MIT or Princeton or somewhere and then you get tenure. But it's never stated what you do. It's just like you're getting these positions of eminence. But who knows what the work is that, that you actually do. So I wanted to reverse that. I thought it would be interesting to say, hey, if you solve these problems or make these discoveries, you'll win a Nobel Prize no matter where you come from. And it was challenging because I couldn't find any record in any place of these unsolved problems. Sometimes I could locate a book where it would say, here are the top unsolved problems in mathematics, where there's a wiki page on physics. But something that goes across the whole economy in a systematic fashion that says, if you solve this problem, <laughs> you have a good shot at winning a Nobel Prize. It occurred to me that that's where this stood out, is like, okay, you could achieve greatness if you set a goal for trying to solve some of these unsolved problems in, in different fields. And then I thought about education. I think it's fascinating that we hide our ignorance. You walk into any physics department, instead you see uh, titles of eminence uh, on the staff and so on. But how much more interesting would it be if even the greatest physicist in the Princeton department, physics department, acknowledged that, hey, here are the top 10 problems we haven't been able to solve yet. I'm working on one. It's really hard. I, I don't have good answers, but, you know, you give it a shot, too. <laughs> that, that would be really interesting, I think. Uh, so, so that's why I, in my book, I, I decided to, to try to, you know, put that out there. And in, in, in maybe just, yeah, to expand the theme, I just feel like we've lost our sense of greatness. I mean, politically, a lot of people want to belittle it or pretend it doesn't exist. Um, but even more practically, I think when when younger people are dreaming about what they might become, I think there aren't a lot of answers as to what that could be and how it could, how it could happen. I think in sports, we see this. It's like you know that a great baseball player wins championships and has great stats and so on, but you know what would it take to become a great novelist or a great scientist is, is left very open and not really explored. And I feel like it used to be, appears to have been more obvious historically. Yeah. Like there used to be a clearer path for becoming 
a great novelist or going into the sciences and discovering things. Maybe there's a bias there because when you're reading the biographies of people who went and did it, it's like they were very driven. Yeah. So it appears like it was more of an obvious thing. Do you think this is something that's become less obvious over time, more shrouded, or do you think it's... I think certainly in the sciences and technology-related fields. In what time period do you think? Over the last, yeah. I think maybe since the atom bomb. Okay. I think, I, or the, the, you know, when Einstein died in the 50s, I think what died with him was also the sense of, of the great scientist. And, you know, maybe there are still people like Hawking and so on, but the, um, but maybe not to the same level, not to the same stature. Um, and I, I don't know. Yeah. It's seen, it's like if you, I, there's a whole series of, of genres in fiction about, uh, coming-of-age stories of different kinds. Uh, in German, they call it the Bildungsroman. Um, and then there are different subgenres within that where it's like the, the coming-of-age of an artist. So you see the portrait of the artist as a young man, James Joyce, famous example. Um, but what we never see is the portrait of the scientist or entrepreneur as a young man. It's like just culturally, we don't have that... Um, it's not seen, and this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, it's just not seen as an adventurous, exciting life, or at least hasn't been of interest to artists to portray it that way. Um, so I think there aren't a lot of, uh, call it scripts. I don't want to say role models because that makes it sound like Michael Jordan. If, if, if the difference between me and Michael Jordan is so large, it's hard for me to imagine what it would take to get there. So it's like in the way that you as a homeschooler were exposed to different ages and different things. That allowed you to see a scaffold, I think, for how to get to certain places. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if in our society we're just missing the rungs on the ladder, especially outside of institutions like universities. It's like that seems to be the only ladder. Okay, I'm going to take it. Um, So maybe we need more scripts, more role models, more examples of people who are, are... striving for excellence in some way. And, and maybe that can serve to inspire the, the next generation down. But it can't be so removed that it's like, yeah, Michael Jordan. It's got to be like, there have to be people along the way who are like in between there to, to lead you on. Yeah, having the the mentors at every, who can meet you at every step or be like one step ahead of you at each point in time, especially on the path of entrepreneurship, which is the one yeah. I can relate to most closely. Like having people who are a couple steps ahead of you, mm-hmm. who have enough time and space and can still relate to where you are, that they can be encouraging you at the phase that you're in yeah. is helpful along with the kind of long-term horizon role models of like, it would be really cool to be like that someday. Yeah, But in the midterm, I have to understand how to be like, Billy over here, who's mm-hmm. like, you know, actually building a company yeah. that's a few stages ahead of where oh. mine is, but he's not so busy that he can't. It's not like calling Elon Musk and be like, hey, could you give me some advice on like how to find a great like CPA or something? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. It's like Edison is inspiring, but he's so old and far removed. It's hard to really get worked up about it. But Elon mm-hmm. Musk is great. I mean, I think he has had a very positive influence on, you know, people, yeah, young, I mean, even my age, but even younger. It's just the the types of things he's building are just so, 
you know, wondrous and unlikely rockets. And the accessibility of it too. Like he's yeah. just a meme lord on Twitter. Like you can just go comment on his memes and be like, this is a real human that I can relate to. Yeah, right. Also, he's doing these things. So I, I think there is a, a Elon effect. As someone was, I can't remember the stat, but it was pretty clear that like, it, you know, Elon's existence has been cited as an example for people to, like, want to do things, you know, in polls among younger people. So I, I, I think, yeah, he, he's really important. We just need more of him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in, in the book, which I have here, and I loved, by the way, I've told you this before, okay, fantastic. I'm glad you enjoyed um, yeah. And the coda actually was one of my favorite parts where you're That's actually cool. laying out all of these different practical, mm. scientific, like here are the different things that are actual like problems that need to be solved that people can go chase. For those who haven't read the book yet, they should. But <laughs> if they haven't yet, what can you outline really quickly, like mm. what these core, because I want to dig into some of these, but I want to set some yeah. context first. What are these big problems that you're writing about mm. that people need to be solving for that right. are, like you said, very inobvious to the average person who like wants to be a scientist or a writer? Yeah. Um, well, so I mentioned some of the motivations for writing that section. Another one could just be one of the main criticisms of, of tech is that uh, it's involved with solution pollution. There are a number of writers in the last decade who have criticized tech for just always being problem-solving oriented or for not even addressing some of the deeper issues of life. You know, these fundamental questions about how to live, who to, how to love, how to face death. And, and I want to say, okay, I can grant that, but let's look at where we could make progress and how we would measure it. And if we solve these things, these, pro- these problems, I think humanity is going to be in a very great place indeed. Uh, and, and then maybe we can focus more on the meaning of life at that point. And so I start off with the, with the energy sector. Um, you know, we can leave the debate about fossil fuels aside. I do think in the long run, um, you know, they, they will be with us, especially natural gas. But I think in the long run, humanity does need to discover new forms of energy, you know, that have just denser and stronger capabilities. And so, you know, going through, okay, nuclear fusion is the ultimate uh, energy source. It's where we get all of our energy from the sun. Uh, so it's somewhat miraculous to me that we've figured out how to spark a star on Earth, haven't figured out how to sustain it. That's the, one of the unsolved problems is we know how to generate the, the plasma required to uh, fuse atoms. But <clears throat> there are big problems and issues with that. So, uh, you know, this ferocious plasma is difficult to contain. Uh, the containment problem is one of the outstanding issues in fusion. Um, so it's like, how do you, you know, one style is to create a giant magnet uh, to contain the fusion. Another is to focus on lasers and an implosion. But we haven't really solved the issue of, of, of how to do this in an energy-efficient way. So that, to me, is one of the outstanding problems in energy creation is, is we figured out how, to, how the sun makes its energy, and we can recreate that to some degree. But uh, we, haven't, we don't know how to sustain it. So, you know, that could be like the chief problem of all problems, because if we lower the cost of energy and it's just abundant and, and for that matter, clean and, uh, you know, doesn't pollute the air, um, then, then I think that would be a huge, huge boon to humanity. And, and I, God, this, the amount of spending, it's like we waste so much money. <laughs> it's something like a trillion dollars on school, K through 12. 
uh, counting local and state and federal money. And that's another half billion for higher ed. I mean, just think of the money wasted in different government programs. And we just spend so little on, on investigating fusion research. So that, that, that's a good example where I thought if, okay, if we solve this problem, that this would be one of the huge milestones in the history of man. Um, and then we don't even have to go to fusion. It's like nuclear energy. Okay, nuclear energy is already cleaner and greener than any other energy source. Uh, despite the bad press it's received and some of the bad, uh, you know, the Fukushima turned out to be much less worse than I thought, but we can all agree it's a concern. And then even Chernobyl, that disaster. But it's like, you know, we can move on from those uh, third-generation reactors. There are fourth- and fifth-generation reactors coming down the pipeline. And there are issues with uh, dealing with waste, dealing with proliferation fears. And, and those are all problems that we could solve. So if we just focus on, okay, what's wrong here, uh, rather than letting it, you know, banning it because we're, we fear it might get out of control, uh, I, I just have faith that the, our imagination will figure out a way. Um, so, yeah, I, I could keep going through these, but it's interesting to me that, uh, that people don't really think in these terms. If I, I'm not, I think climate change is probably something, you know, especially a warming planet in that sense, um, is something, you know, that could be a concern. Um, I don't think it's as catastrophic as some of the more radical um, doomsdayers. But um, what stands out to me in those debates is how little people actually know about the issue at hand. If you're worried about the amount of carbon, uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere or, or its equivalents, then let's talk about how to remove it or <laughs> how to stop producing it. And the human mind can solve these problems. But I, I can't tell you how many people I've met especially because I'm in my 40s. I know a lot of people uh, now in their 30s wanting to have kids, and then they've decided they don't. And one of the main things they say is that they're afraid of the future, and and, cli- and they cite climate change as one of the main, uh, you know, one of the <laughs> main horsemen, four horsemen of the apocalypse that, that is going to prevent them from having kids. Well, that's, that, I, I don't know why you would want to surrender. I mean, we can solve these problems. They are solvable. This is a very big question, mm-hmm. but I also imagine it's something you've spent time thinking about. What, like, how do we educate kids to be interested in these problems? or to be to think that these are problems that they actually as young people maybe even before they've gone to college can start mm. tackling and there are examples of people who've done this like Cole Summers/Kevin Cooper I don't know if you're familiar with his story he was a um he he got a lot of press after he passed away last year but he was a 14-year-old kid in the Great Basin Desert in Utah who mm. was like running a ranch that he owned himself and was working on uh, replenishing depleting aquifer that was oh, wow. providing water for you'd you'd find the story very interesting. I'll send to, you some yeah, stuff I'll afterwards, and I'll I'll share in the show notes too. Um, but like there are there are examples of people like that who are very naturally curious about problems like this. Yeah. Um, but the average person doesn't even think about it. So how yeah. how do we go from where well, we are fresh, now? Fresh you go to a hackathon. Is another what. Just freshwater creation, I think, is a outstanding problem, especially in the mm-hmm. American West. I'd love to read more about his story. But again, it stands out to me. I live in Colorado, the 
Colorado River is is pretty low, and especially mm-hmm. Lake Mead, where it collects outside Vegas at the Hoover Dam, all-time lows. And yet, as a society, we don't really think about how to turn this around. I don't think we have a shortage of water, but a shortage of innovation. Uh, there's a great example in Israel, which has, across 40 years, managed to turn a desert into a net exporter of you know, fruits and vegetables. And they've done it by uh, lots of different things, certain policy changes, but also innovation. Um, they've built desalination plants much cheaper and, and more productive than, than anything we have. They, I think they've built five along their coast in the last 15 years. The price tag something like 200, 250 million. Whereas we, we built one desalination plant in Carlsbad, California. It took a decade and billions of dollars. Um, and, and it's still a political controversy because environmentalists are concerned about some of the life around it. Um, so that's I, I, like, okay, we can solve these problems. There are different things we can do to increase fresh water, to uh, be more efficient about using the water we have. And yet again, I just come across like chicken littles who say that the sky is falling and there's nothing we can do to stop it. How do we change that as a society? I don't know. I mean, I, I think, uh, I think it's at the smallest level, stories like the one you just told, we got to spread the word. Uh, I mean, we need examples of people, you know, taking these things head on and turning the tide. What about beyond examples like because you you interact with a lot of young people mm. and i'm sure there are i have theories about what these are but i'm sure there are trends that you see mm. in the young people who are entrepreneurially minded and are curious and are hungry to solve problems and it's not all just nature like right. i'm sure that there are characteristics that can be cultivated in kids Mm. that make them more inclined to, one, be rebellious enough to want to step outside the system and do their own thing, but two, to be interested in these types of problems and feel a sense of, like, wait a second, maybe I can actually do something meaningful to Mm. to help tackle some of these. What, What are the biggest characteristics that you look for in young people that you're interacting with? Yeah, I, I have a chapter in the book where I try to distill some of the learnings we've had working with Teal Fellows, sorting through those applications, and now investing in founders. And, and you know, the concepts I provide are, are rough and by no means guarantee success, but we've certainly seen some patterns emerge. Um, one of the things that stands out for me, I, I call this edge control, a, a term I took from uh, extreme sports and uh, some of these, and I don't know what to call it, but there apparently there are people who will climb buildings at night and like jump rooftop to rooftop. And <laughs> um, I read a book on some of these people, and and <clears throat> there's always idea this this sense of the thrill of negotiating the boundary between order and chaos. Um, and for some people, it is a thrill. For some people, it's a nightmare. Some people do not want to engage with uh, trying to control the uncontrollable or at least wrestling with it. Um, if you're a skydiver struggling with your parachute, uh, you know some people might get a thrill out of that experience. Um, other people might be terrified and never do it again. Um, but you know, I think when it comes to entrepreneurship, 
you know, the, one of the underlying virtues is just this, if I had to pinpoint what is the rock in the alleyway that people could kick around as the sort of beginning of, of the game, um, maybe it's just trying stuff out, trying shit out, uh, you know, running little experiments, just having fun with it. And I think if you, why I say that is like, if you, it, it's all about put, handling that edge uh, at the earliest level when the stakes are low and the, you know, the, the pain of mess up is not that bad. And then maybe you can build your confidence up. All of this is to say, I think there's some level of risk uh, taking or risk management. I don't know what to call it that I think we as a society just don't do a good job in cultivating because we have people in these structured environments and our whole system is predicated on grading people um, and and having and using those grades as some sense of a permanent record, uh, that's just going to instill a sense of fear and caution in people. Rather than push yourself to take, let's say you had some passion for a diff- difficult subject, uh, you might be foolish to take a class in that subject if it means you're going to get a D or C on your transcript, and that's going to prevent you from going to law school or medical school or something. So, um, you know, we just you know, we don't do a good job teaching people how to manage or 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 come to love that process of handling risk. Um, and and so when we're looking for entrepreneurs to back, we are looking for people who you know m- m- not even tolerate. It's like they relish handling that skid and spark of being slightly out of control and, and doing new things. Um, uh, so I, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about cause it's like different in different fields, but there's mm-hmm. some sense in which, you know, the known is, is safe and the unknown is scary and, and, but discovery can only take place on that boundary between the two. And I think as a society, we need to cultivate this virtue of being able to manage that well. How much of that do you think in an individual is nature versus nurture? Because we definitely, we have varying risk yeah. tolerances. Uh, and the entrepreneurs that I know definitely tend to be on the extreme side of the spectrum mm. of people who can tolerate risk. They're not, they're not average. But at the same time, we live in a culture that makes us very risk averse. Like it's yeah. not, it's frowned upon to take to take a lot of the types of risks that entrepreneurs mm-hmm. need to. I think it can be done. You're, I think there's going to be a bell curve distribution, no matter what population you look at, where some people are just going to be more risk-loving and other people are going to be risk-averse. But maybe like one shift on a small scale is, uh, if you've noticed how different towns can handle driving in the snow. So I live in Colorado, and you know we can have a foot of snow and, and people are out there on the road and, and they're actually good drivers out there. You know, maybe accidents happen, but they're not out of control. Whereas I've been in like a town like Dallas, all of a sudden you get an inch of snow and people are fishtailing their way through uh, red lights and smashing in the sides of buildings. It's like no one knows how to do it. So I, I think there must be something where, you know, if, if snow is risk, uh, just, you know, exposing people uh, over time can can help prepare them. And then even the, because their skills can match the circumstances at, at hand, uh, it doesn't feel so risky even for the moderately risk averse. Um, so maybe there's something to that. It's more about the perception than, than the reality. I do think that kids dabbling in entrepreneurship is almost always an enormous net positive, even mm. if they don't. Because like long-term, not everybody's 
cut out to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Not everybody should be an entrepreneur yeah. either. Our society right. would fall apart if we just had a whole <laughs> bunch of people trying to go build startups and nobody was actually like doing anything yeah, the to hold. The majority of people will not be entrepreneurs. And they, and that's how it should be. Yeah. But there's also a level of entrepreneurial thinking. Like even if you're not an entrepreneur, being able to think along those lines mm. and, you know, because there's, there's small scale entrepreneurship too, where you're like, starting a publication with your ideas right. like on Substack and you're not building a company or anything, but you're still doing something a little mm-hmm. entrepreneurial that's a net positive to yeah. both yourself and also the world at large. But I think even for people who aren't going to be entrepreneurs long-term, I think encouraging some basic entrepreneurship at some point in a childhood is very important just to help people understand it and for the, the, mm. the qualities that it cultivates in a child, yeah. even if they're not, they're not taking that path long-term. I wish we had a greater... Um, and this could be a public policy issue that we just had a, a greater entre- apprenticeship program in America or, or that somehow that was part. If we're going to have mandatory school, maybe school doesn't have to look the same for everyone. And so in their teens, people could um, apprentice with contractors, electricians, the trades, maybe even, you know, it, it, so I learned that Switzerland has a very robust apprenticeship program something like 70% of all teens are a part of it. And it's not just about manufacturing the trades. It's also banking, finance. And as a result, they don't have, you know, a lot of indebted 20-year-olds who aren't quite sure what to do with themselves. Um, so I, I think there could be a place for that kind of entrepreneurship where you learn how to be a plumber or an electrician and you don't want to be in a classroom. It's just not your way of life. And so you get started on that early. And then maybe you start your own business when you're in your 20s. What about when you're investing in education companies? Mm. What are you looking for there? Because you're all you're thinking about this from both sides of the coin. You're thinking yeah. about like, how are we cultivating talent? Right. You know, we actually have not invested. I think we just made one of our first investments. Like ed tech has always turned us off. We haven't come across anything really? that actually improves outcomes. Uh, tends really? To, yeah, it tends to be either old stuff. It's like lecture, uh, Coursera. Okay, we're going to put stuff online or or maybe here's a new study tool. But I, never, I haven't really come across anything that, that stood out. Our first investment is in a company that is making a third place for homeschoolers. So third place is, to, you know, it's not your home, it's not your workplace, but it is a place you like to visit from time to time. It could be the coffee shop. Um, mm-hmm. But in this case, I guess the thought is that there are a lot of homeschoolers and maybe the parent needs to run some errands or just needs some time off. And this establishment is going to be a place where you can bring your child for a couple hours, you know, leave them there and they get to, you know, do their own self-exploration or projects or whatever. Sort of like a self-directed learning center, yeah, like a exactly. high-pod style. Yeah, in okay. the mold of, imagine, you know, a Kumon center that wasn't so dictatorial about mathematics, but <laughs> like mm-hmm. someplace where, you know, your child would actually like being for a couple hours. Um, so we'll see. I mean, that's one of our first investments in, in this kind of space. Um just because I think it has been so hard. It's also never clear who the customer is and some of these things. It's like people are trying to sell the schools, but ultimately it's supposed to help the student, but the students hate the product. So are you really going to force this on them? I don't know. Yeah. And, and in principle, we're against anything that will help the current system get better. <laughs> it's like, 
Well, I don't, yeah. don't want to help people write better college admissions essays. I don't help them, uh, you know, run that rat race a little faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a lack of innovative ideas that are different than than the current system. Yeah. Well, I, and then the other thing, we are limited in that as a venture capital fund, we have to invest in opportunities that can grow to a massive scale. Mm-hmm. So it could be the case that we meet people who, you know, maybe they've run their own pod or, um, you know, they, they just have a good idea about how to educate someone. But for us, we can't see it as a good way to, to make money as investors. So we can, so we can only support them with moral support. Um, Rather than yeah, some deep and you know large investment. Mm-hmm. So that 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 limits a lot of what's on the table as well. But I I I, I don't know. I, I think the techniques are out there. I don't, maybe there are new ones to be discovered, or technology could help improve outcomes, especially when it comes to self testing and that type of technique. But mm-hmm. um. What I what I, I what I think we just need to see is like a revolt, a, a secession from from the current system, and uh, maybe opportunities will come out of that. But the first step, you know, the the only winning move is not to play. So just keep your kids out. Which is happening. <laughs> yeah. Which is is happening at an accelerating rate. It's definitely not a majority movement yet, but it's significantly higher than it was five years ago. Mm-hmm. Which is. Exciting to see the trend shifting, but also like maintaining post-COVID. Yeah, um, that, that, that's optimistic. Yeah, it is. What about, this is a little bit of a pivot question, mm-hmm. but one of the things that I find very interesting about your background is that like you're very deep in the VC world mm. now doing like investing in like tech and hard sciences and stuff, but your background originally was like philosophy and academia. Yeah. And I think that balance is very interesting um, because it's sort of one of the things that surprised me the most about meeting people who are very entrepreneurial people, Mm. especially like tech startup people like the the true visionaries who are coming up with new ideas and building things, most of them tend to have a very extensive grounding in like the liberal arts. Hmm. They have a lot, a deep understanding of history or they've read a lot of the classics or right. they they really understand philosophy and can talk about it for hours late at night. There's, hmm. there's a very interesting correlation there that I think is very inobvious to people. It certainly okay. wasn't expected for me. Um, I thought I was going to be the weird one out when I started meeting these types of people where it's like, yeah, I've read a lot of classics because I like them, but that's not really like topical here, right? Mm. Um, but it seems to be a very strong correlation. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, one, how much of an impact you feel like your very non-technical philosophical background has had mm. on your ability to do the work that you do. Um, but then also like how how much you've noticed that trend or have not noticed that trend in the types of people that you work with who seem to have a capacity to come up with innovative ideas. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. One is in the book, to go back to those characteristics we look for in people, it's not, <clears throat> it's not in all the entrepreneurs we work with, but, but in, in a great number and, um, and in myself, I wanted to 
dig in a little bit in the book, which is why I tell my personal story, was just this, uh, what we call the insider-outsider polarity or dynamic. And so this was something we picked up on from Peter Thiel. Uh, I thought I was, you know, this interesting person who just happened to be hired by Peter, meaning I, yeah, I thought I was going to, I was on my way to becoming a philosophy professor, dropped out of a doctoral program. And then uh, found my, you know, through a series of events, I eventually found myself working for Peter um, at his hedge fund where I have no background in finance. But I soon discovered, you know, this is just something that Peter does. Uh, He hires a lot of, you know, creative, intelligent people to just have fresh eyes on old problems. And that goes back to PayPal. So you can read a great book by Jimmy Sonny, the, the, the founders, about the PayPal story. And time and again, Peter is just making hires because he knows someone is really capable uh, and they'll get up to speed on the on the problem fast. So it turns out I wasn't that special at all. You know, I was working with, a, when I worked for Peter, it was like, you know, a lot of people had uh, attained some level of success or accomplishment in a field or even academics, but then had somehow, you know, gone their own way. And, and for Peter, you know, this derives from, of, of all the unlikely inspirations for venture capital, Peter derived this principle from uh, one of his professors at Stanford, René Girard, this French literary theorist who became something of an anthropologist. Uh, Girard is famous for thinking about, you know, the madness of crowds, mob mentality, uh, witch hunts, scapegoating. And in Girard's book on scapegoating, you know, he canvasses the mythologies of the world. And in, in a lot of cases, the, the, the crowd, who they pick to be scapegoated is an interesting question. Um, and sometimes that person becomes a hero. Sometimes that person is killed. Um, and Peter picked it. You know, Girard talks about how extreme characteristics draw the attention of the crowd. And often it's the case that the scapegoat is this insider and outsider. Can't be so outside that they are foreign and therefore in no way responsible for the social crisis on, at hand. But on the other hand, neither can they be so inside that you know, they're the king's left hand or whatever and um, you know, so loyal that they would never be questioned. So it's like the people who are chosen as scapegoats are always these boundary figures. And Peter used this as a heuristic to think about what makes a great founder or even employee is someone who, who exhibits this insider-outsiderness. So it's in my, in my own life. I, I grew up thinking one person was my dad. And when I was 20, discovered someone else was my dad. And so for me, you know, even in my own family, it's like I was a member of it, but I was not a member of it. Um, I'm, I, I, I saw the inner temple of academia. Uh, I almost became a a, you know, one of the, one of the priests of the system. Uh, but then I, then I left. And so in that sense, I was an insider and now I'm tacking it as an outsider. So con- we're, we're aware of these things. I think it's one of the reasons immigrants make great entrepreneurs is because on the one hand, they're U.S. citizens, they're part of this country, but on the other hand, they're still outsiders to some degree. So they see things differently. So there's something about that that lends itself to innovation um, and I wanted to portray that in my book at different levels. Um, and then the other thing you said is the, the liberal arts. I think as, 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 like, as it used to be taught, I think it can be a valuable education. I just think, you know, a lot of colleges have lost their way. 
and they're not even sure of what they're teaching. Um, it's hard to know what is, uh, yeah, correlation or causation. Is it the case that the types of people who like hard questions, like the meaning of life, you know, they're also the types of people who are willing to deal with the uncertainties of, of entrepreneurship? There could be something to that. Um, but I think where it has helped me a great deal is in thinking about what matters. Um, you know, maybe there's some level of research that I do that, you know, I learned along the way. I'm generally pretty good at getting up to speed on on something and knowing where to look for the right resources. So maybe those are the types of skills that that I learned over time. But I think you're right in the sense of like even even someone like Steve Jobs was always like mixing a bit of the philosophical and spirituality into his talks about simple products like the computer or the i iPhone. Um, and there's something to that personality that. Um, you know, maybe it's just part of that creative spirit. And and he always said that, you know, the best technology is at the crossroads of of science and the liberal arts. So there's mm-hmm. something to that in the in the sense of like the the crossroads of truth, goodness, and beauty are true within technology as well as in, you know, what the the old ideals of the academy used to be. Do you think it's important to encourage some level of liberal arts education for the average person. And by, I use the word encourage because I'm not, I'm generally anti-coercion of any yeah, kind yeah. in education. And I use liberal arts very loosely because, you know, it's it's anything that's, you know, reading literature, studying right. philosophy, studying history, like whatever's interesting to you. But do you think it is... I, I talk to a variety of people about this question because I find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I talk to some people who are like more academic and they're obviously very pro the liberal arts. And right. then there's the very pragmatic people who are like, no, we just need to teach kids skills. <laughs> and I think that the correct answer is somewhere yeah. in the middle. But I'm curious what your take I is. I don't think it's necessary to a f- rich and fulfilling life. Um, I think it can be a way to grapple with some of the harder questions of life. I think one of the most beautiful things about a great novel is that in some sense it's addressing some of these fundamental issues. Um, But yeah, I'm not going to say that it's a requirement for anyone. I think you could still become a, even a profound thinker without having encountered the work of Shakespeare (laughs) or, you know, pick your, you're great. Um, but that said, yeah, I think they can be tools to stretch the mind uh, in some form or the other, um, whether it's, yeah, these types of probing questions that can't really be answered. Um, but when it comes down to it, like, I, you know, I, and I don't think schools are good at this, but how to increase one's receptivity to beauty or to, you know, depth and you know, the philosophically profound. I, I, you know, I don't think schools are good at that, but I, I do wish I would, I would want that education available should someone want to choose it. Um, but I'm not quite sure what it is. What we do know is that sometimes just simply reading these books and, you know, deliberating on them and reflecting on them is one way to do it. But, but it's by no means sound and, and schools seem and universities have lost their way. The one, and and then the next thing is like the one pushback I have is, especially among conservatives, is I do love <clears throat> the the great books. I mean, I, I I certainly 
look to them for wisdom. Um, but it's interesting that they they never consider how these great books were created. It's like, okay, the, the, the list of great books is final, and we'll never really know how to add to them. Best you can do is hope to read them. Um, I, it's like, not only do I want to uh, appreciate great works of poetry, I, I, I also wish we knew how to create great works of poetry. Uh, it's always going to involve some mystery, uh, but I, I think we know little. There have never been more poets alive today. To go back to that stat earlier, like the number of great people proportional to the, the population, we've never had so many creative writing programs, therefore poets and writers, and I feel like never has poetry been worse <laughs> than it was in the past. I, you know, so it's like, I wish we knew how to create great things, whether they be novels, poems, movies, plays. Um, but our school system certainly doesn't do that. In any liberal arts education in the true sense of the word, I think should be obsessed with that question as well. Yeah, I think like for the average parent that's trying to figure out, like this all sounds very nice. Mm. I would like my child to be a creative thinker and to yeah. be... Like if they have ideas and they want to be an entrepreneur, to be positioned to be entrepreneurial, to feel encouraged and inspired and capable. I think exposure is part of it. Mm-hmm. Like just exposing yeah. kids to great works of literature. I mean, that's how I developed my appreciation mm-hmm. for good books. Is my mom was right. just very picky about like my friends would be reading something. She'd be like, no, that's terrible writing. Like, I don't think you're going to enjoy that. Why don't you read like The Secret Garden instead? That's very beautiful. Mm. And so like I learned to kind of have a a palette that had some distinction between what's beautiful and what's not and what's quality and what's not. But I also was just like exposed to a lot of things. Mm. And so I was like, I remember, um, what was the guy? Somebody Bentley, the guy who photographed all the snowflakes. Like we just had books about things like that just everywhere so like whatever was curious like I want to go study snowflakes like okay like somebody did that I want to do that too like I want to go look at all the snowflakes and see how everyone's different and put it under a microscope that we found at the garage sale because we thought that would be fun like just exposing kids to things like that I think is makes a huge difference which school does but it does it poorly yeah I think we also need vital living arenas of ambition meaning like Shakespeare wasn't his own self-creation. He, he was a, a struggling actor who had aspirations and moved to London and you know, was in competition with these other writers of his time that really brought out his greatness. And what's funny is he didn't have a university education and he was lampooned for it at the time because a lot of the other playwrights went to Cambridge. Um, and, and, but, uh, yeah, I was on tour at, uh, the Folger Library in Washington, D.C., one of the largest collections of Shakespeare's works, folios, and so on, and this tour guide showed me a map of London, <clears throat> and she points to this thing next to the Globe Theater, the London of, like, 1603 or whatever, and, uh, and she says, do you know what that is? And I said, no, I don't. She says, well, it was a bear baiting pit. It's like, what the hell was that? She says uh, it was an entertainment at the time, you know, such a violent era that uh, it was an entertainment to tie a bear to a post with a chain. And then they would sick dogs on the, they'd send dogs in to attack the bear. And people would bet in the crowd uh, as to how many dogs that the bear would kill before it succumbed to its injuries. And I thought that, wow, 
you know, that was Shakespeare's competition. He had the right plays so captivating and beautiful that people chose not to go to the bear baiting pit, but instead <laughs> to walk into the globe. And that always stood out to me because it's like, yeah, you, it's like in the crucible of that arena, his craft was perfected and attained heights it wouldn't have on its own. And so where are those arenas today for us? Maybe we have Hollywood and it exists to some extent. People move there to become great filmmakers. Um, but I think when it comes to some of these older arts, like I think the novel's pretty much dead. Maybe no one, I mean, outside of like certain genres, fantasy, sci-fi and stuff, it just as a, as a cultural phenomenon that has lost its force. Is it, this is just a curiosity question. Do you think that it's uh, fully dead or in the words of the Princess Bride, it's just mostly dead. It can be revived. I think it could be revived. I think this idea of literary fiction has to die, that there's some subset that strives for prestigious literary taste and it's not tied to some genre. I mean, it all tends to be like family drama and stuff. I mean, who are the great serious novelists today? And the last generation seems to be the one, you know, people like Jonathan Franzen, before him David Foster Wallace, um, Philip Roth. <clears throat> These stories are very small. They tend to be family dramas. Um, but the writing could be very beautiful. Um, so I, I, I wonder if... if if novelists stopped being so serious and precious and instead just told great stories, uh, you know, maybe it would bring some life back to the, to the art form. I think the reason genre fiction does so well, fantasy, sci-fi, I'm a huge fan of spy novels. I think it does so well because those writers uh, love telling great stories. Um, they love character plot and theme and, 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 you know, as part of the arts in the 20th century, one of the trends was, like, to, to give up on everything that made some art form great, um, whether it was painting or music or, or even the novel. Um, so I think we got to get back to the basics, and, and maybe it would bring some life back. But that said, I mean, it's competing against so many things for people's attention now. And, and just, like, you know, prestige television has, has certainly reached a level in the last 15 years that I— I think, I don't, I don't know if it's on par with the novel, but it's up there. And uh, and then even movies to some extent, although not as much as they used to be. Um, but they still demand our attention. And then you add the phone and everything. It's hard to imagine people sitting and reading novels like they used to. Um, but, I, but yeah, I, I won't go away from it completely. I think there's still a spot for it in, in the world. Yeah, well, the question of of quality versus reach are two separate questions mm. to like how many people are going to read a novel versus how like, are we actually going to write a great novel? Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I, I think the, but the thing is like, I think you need a, a vital competitive arena to draw the best in people and to draw talent mm. in. So I, I, what do young people want to become today? I mean, maybe they want to become a showrunner. It's like, maybe that's where people gravitate to now. If, the, if you have ambition and you're 20, you don't want to, move to New York and start writing the great American novel. No, you want to somehow get a Netflix deal to write a 13-episode show. Um, and, and, and there are some great shows out there. I, I just finished the second season of White Lotus, and I think it's just a wonderful show that, you know, it's, it, it is a genre show. It's a mystery show. It starts off with a murder. Um, but on the other hand, it's just savage, and it's social satire, and... 
really, really humorous depictions of, of I don't know, frivolity in different ways. So I, I, I recommend that one. But, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be the case that these, these art forms are, are drawing the talent that they used to. I mean, poetry, who, who becomes a poet anymore? I mean, maybe, and even even a rock. I guess you become a, a rapper or hip hop star, but even even the songwriters seem to be disappearing. <laughs> it's a strange phenomenon. That's a. <laughs> we need more time to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, if people enjoyed this conversation mm-hmm. and they want to find more about your work with fifteen seventeen, your work personally, your writing, where would you send them next? Well, certainly if they want to talk to us about some idea they're working on, go to 1517fund.com. We have a contact form. That's a great way to get in touch with us. Me, my co-founder, Danielle, and Zach, you mentioned before, we all read these form submissions. Um, but you can just find me on Twitter, actually, because I started it. I was a journalist at the time when Twitter started, and I thought it was something for haikus. So I picked the poet's name, at William underscore Blake. That's my Twitter handle. Big fan of the poet. Um, so you can find me there on Twitter, uh, read my book, paper belts on fire available at Amazon audible. Um, definitely, uh, a fun, I think, uh, portrayal of, you know, behind the scenes account of what it's like to work in this world of VC and dropouts and stuff. So definitely check that out. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time for this, especially in the middle of your busy travel. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And as I said before, I think your tweets are amazing. So keep tweeting. And oh, I'm, you can't stop me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Hannah Franklin Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. If you are listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a rating. Please subscribe. If you're watching on YouTube, please like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let me know what you think. That's it for this week. I'll see you next week, friends.